0: Uh, welcome to The Future Strategist, and today I have a guest other than Greg Cochran. Um, I have trouble pronouncing his name, so let me, I'll try um, Samo. is that,
1: uh, how close yeah, that, is that? Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: So could you um, introduce yourself and, and tell our listeners uh, what you do?
1: Uh, I'm Samo Buria, I'm the founder of Bismarck Analysis. It's a political risk consulting firm. I'm also a research fellow at the Long Now Foundation. I uh, do a lot of thinking on big picture history and the, uh, you know, functionality and uh, sometimes dysfunctionality of institutions, of organizations. Um, you can find my uh, writing on my website, samoburia.com, uh, or find me on Twitter.
0: Yes, and I've been very impressed with your Twitter account. That's why I asked you to to be a guest on the show. So um, you, you've written a Bunch about um, the crisis in Ukraine. How How do you think it's going? How do you think Russia's going to end up doing?
1: Right. One of the most important, I think, updates over the last few months has been that Ukraine isn't a rounding error. In the early days, quite understandably, everyone, myself included, focused primarily on Russia. Almost all explanations of how the war is going focused on Russia's forces. This is an understandable assumption because, you know, Russia is a big country. Uh, Putin has been in the news for many years. Lots and lots of people have, um, you know, opinions and sometimes even knowledge uh, about the workings of Russia. It's a nuclear superpower, though arguably that's the only way in which it remains a true superpower. Uh, Its nuclear arsenal is, you know, a match for that of the United States. And, uh, you know, it, it has been a country with sort of a long history of competition with the United States. Extremely charismatic and, you know, I would be the last to downplay. It's also very real military capabilities and military threat. It is a mistake, however, to think that the outcome of any war uh, can be judged just by looking at one side. And the more I've looked at Ukraine over the last few months, the more I've come to appreciate just how different the country is compared to where it was in 2014. Um, It seems much less of the money that they spent on defense was wasted uh, than you would think. Uh, Before 2014, uh, Ukraine had serious corruption issues. Uh, Often, projects were not well, you know, the funding wasn't cost-effective, the wrong things were funded, its defensive posture Was sort of based on this completely obsolete Cold War paradigm. Like as late as 2013, you know, Ukrainian forces were deployed in the west of the country, protecting against the, you know, by that point, non existent threat of a NATO invasion rather than the east of the country, where again in 2014, uh, Russia backed the breakaway regions of Luhansk and Donetsk and uh, outright annexed Crimea in a very impressive military and political operation. Overall, um and this is, you know, I think relatively pessimistic, despite the serious military reforms of Ukraine, them overperforming expectations and acquiring something of a national spirit politically and of course the backing and armaments of the western world, at the end of the day I expect uh Russia to acquire more territory. And at the end of the day, Russia acquiring more territory at Ukraine's expense is all that's really needed uh, for Putin to declare victory at home. And that's enough to sort of stabilize the government. It might still not have been the very best move for Russia, but generally in a war, the winner is considered the side that gains territory
0: yeah and I think unfortunately we need Putin to have a path where he can claim victory or else atomic weapons might come into play at some point.
1: That's certainly the case that there's a very real um, there's a very real risk for the use of these weapons. I don't know enough, and I'm not sure who does to evaluate the you know how formidable the nuclear arsenals are in practice. There have been all of these claims that parts of it, them, you know, might not be well maintained. On the other hand, you know, it's definitely true that the Russian state has made it a strategic priority. Uh, They were even building new nuclear bunkers in the 1990s. So during the Yeltsin era, right, during the Yeltsin era, they were still building infrastructure related, new infrastructure related to Uh, the scenario of a nuclear war and nuclear deterrence. And that was almost, you know, the peak of the amicable relationships between Russia and the United States. I think that it's very understandable why Ukrainians want to defend their country. It's very understandable why President Zelensky wants to um, fight and perhaps has even an incentive to expand the conflict. It's also understandable why the Baltic states or Poland are perhaps, you know, um more more invested in stronger support from the West than say I don't know Spain or Ireland or Italy would be but at the end of the day we do have to keep in mind this really this real risk of nuclear war the usual way um, one justifies wars is that you have a political objective that justifies, the relevant losses, right, that justifies the necessary side effects of using military ends. So basically in strategy, matching means and ends. And one of the strongest critiques sort of of uh, nuclear war has been that the cost of a nuclear war is so high, right? The, the cost of using these means, these means of achieving a political effect are so high that almost no political objective uh, can really justify them. And it is actually something of a political paradox where, honestly, in the aftermath of even fighting and winning a nuclear war, it's, it's not exactly clear uh, what a country, how a country would justify this politically. It's very, it's very interesting to me to try to think through what the politics would be of a winning nuclear war. And I think the answer is that there's just not that many configurations like that. So it's kind of a war with all losers.
0: Yeah, I've, you know, and I'm i not an expert on this. I just I study game theory and I'm just wondering what the West would do if Putin detonates a, a nuclear weapon somewhere and kills very few people with it, but then says NATO stay out of Ukraine, stop supplying them. And you know, how would well, the US respond to that?
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, the most theatrical thing that could be done is uh, detonating an, a nuclear weapon above ground somewhere in Russia and pointing modern cameras at it and blasting out lots and lots of footage of the detonation on social media, I think that would be considered a provocation. I think the West might reply with undertaking its own charismatic nuclear weapons test, um, but I think that would almost be the safe, safest version of that scenario. It gets a little bit trickier when it comes to the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons in a way that changed the outcome of the war. There are differing assumptions, I think, uh, between Western military planners and Soviet military planners. I think Soviet military planners assumed that the use of tactical nuclear weapons does not automatically lead to an escalation to the use of strategic nuclear weapons and the destruction of cities that responses can be measured so that they are proportional, right? Um, And they, in fact, uh, as far as we can tell from what was declassified in the 1990s, had lots of plans to just use a few tactical nuclear weapons in the case of a serious conventional war and not necessarily expect this is going to escalate. I don't think the Western world would immediately respond with the use of strategic nuclear weapons today. Even those, again, I, I think Western theory is closer to, you know, if a nuclear weapon gets used, you know, there, there has to be sort of a tit for tat, maybe even a tit for tat plus. Um, and that, that's a, a chain that leads perhaps very rapidly to, to widespread destruction and war. Um, I, you know, I, I sort of think that the shock of the use of the first nuclear weapon after, you know, at this point, at this point, it's nearly 80 years uh, since 1945, the first use of a nuclear weapon in a war. um, I think that shock would actually inspire some amount of caution in the West. They would remember that, you know, we... We don't actually have any ironclad obligations to Ukraine. In the long run, I think it would cause a renewed arms race and the breaking of a nuclear taboo, um, you know, so successfully or unsuccessfully might inspire other countries around the world, especially middle middle power countries to try to use nuclear weapons, at least in this tactical capacity. I think the much more risky scenarios, say, the use of nuclear weapons to sort of wipe out a city uh, that they would be trying and perhaps failing to capture. Mariupol has recently been taken with many victims, you know, with with a lot of difficulties, with many casualties on the Russian side, and I'm sure the the Ukrainian side as well. Um, And I I think they still haven't captured the steelworks, where sort of the remnants of the Azov, battalion are quite firmly entrenched. A fight over, say, Odessa would be a much bigger city. You know, it's a much bigger city. It would be a much bigger fight. A fight over Kiev, I just almost have a hard time imagining the Russians winning it in any reasonable amount of time without the government just collapsing. So again, if, if uh, a nuclear weapon was used in the siege of a city, I think that's actually extremely dangerous, not just in the long run, uh, but the short run as well. If it could be framed as an attack primarily on civilians, as an attack on quote-unquote a European city, uh, Western leaders might end up making demands that are unacceptable to the Russian side, and then, you know, the pathway to escalation is there. There would still be intermediate steps. It wouldn't quite be that, you know, Kiev, uh, Kiev or something, or Uh, Odessa is nuked, and then uh, a nuclear war starts within three days. It would be more like a nuclear weapon is used. Some very harsh diplomacy goes back and forth, uh, and there are further incidents. And, you know, eventually the West replies with the use of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it it seems to me crazy that the, the West isn't taking into account the the risk of this kind of escalation, even if it's only a 1% chance that's 1% of something so horrible happening.
1: Well it would be um it would be the worst thing that has ever happened to humans, I think. And for once this would not be an exaggeration. I, I think that uh you know unless you count uh things like these sort of mysterious genetic bottlenecks, right, that we have, what is it, eighty thousand years ago or so, uh, where It seems that only a few thousand humans survived. Maybe that was worse, you know, maybe a volcano eruption or whatever. Uh, But this, I think, would beat anything that happened in recorded history in terms of death toll. But also just, you know, in a relative way, I think a nuclear war is one of the few things that could really kind of knock down our civilization, like a little bit back, a few steps back. It didn't do so in the case of Japan, right? In Japan, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the cities look fine. They're rebuilt. The radiation's not that bad. Um, But this isn't in a context where most of the world's industry is destroyed, right? This isn't a context where, you know, the United States, at least, you know, to the first approximation, um, emerged from World War II an industrial titan. Um, It took very little damage to its industrial base, Uh, but for a nuclear war, one involving the United States and its European allies, Russia, and possibly China, and if China, then also Japan, um, I think that could wipe out most of the world's industrial base. I don't think it ends humans. I don't think it ends mankind, but it's one of the few forces that I think actually could deindustrialize us for a good while, possibly forcing us to go to a much lower level of technology.
0: Although it could end us. I mean, I think in the 1950s or 60s, people figured out how to, like, coat atomic weapons with stuff that would cause radiation that would exterminate all humans. It's not clear anyone's ever built such a weapon, but that could be the last stage of, hey, we've built this, Mm -hmm. you know, with kind of on an automatic pilot thing, like a Dr. Strangelove situation.
1: I mean, I think it's uh, certainly possible to build doomsday weapons. Um, I just think that the nuclear wars that have been planned so far don't actually drive all the way to human extinction, just because the southern hemisphere is so unimportant that the assumption is no one bothers nuking it. Yeah, hence the tech billionaires having residency in New Zealand and doomsday bunkers there. Though, you know, the more New Zealand aligns with China, the less... Good about it, perhaps is. mean, alliance <laughs> against China. Well, New Zealand has actually uh, recently been unusually friendly to China. So I'm not exaggerating when I say that, um, you know, in foreign policy, you know, they're now sort of taking China's side sometimes, and that's a great shock, right? This is one of the Five Eyes countries. Yeah. Um. By default, by default, of course, they've been very Western-aligned, right? That's about as close as you can get, sort of like Britain. America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, that alliance emerged directly from the World War II experience, was never watered down, included deep collaborations in intelligence and very sensitive matters. It's uh, geopolitically a very big deal if China ever truly succeeded in peeling off New Zealand. And if China ever truly succeeded in peeling off New Zealand, then bringing New Zealand back into the fold would, I think, be sort of any, uh, you know, any sort of uh, Cold War thinkers goal uh, for that island, I think it would it would make it a contested set of islands, right? The North and South Island. That's interesting. Is Australia
0: still firmly a U.S. ally?
1: I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Economically, of course, the Chinese have strong interests, but, you know, I think almost uniformly the Australian government is pro-Western. You've written a
0: lot about um, collapse of civilization. Do you think what happened to the Russian army was a deep incompetence that you know crept up over the last few decades and was kind of hidden from Putin? Or do you think it was Western aid to Ukraine? Just the West is so much richer than Russia. We were able to supply them with much better weapons and could reasonably expect it to be produced in Russia.
1: I think uh, the first approximation response I have to this war is that the United States is much stronger than I feared it was, and that the United States' ability to act through its allied nations and its proxies and its client states is much stronger uh, than I feared it was. Uh, I think the collapse of Afghanistan might have caused many observers, uh, myself included, to be more pessimistic about the U.S.'s ability to back allies but you know afghanistan is a very different culture than ukraine the very same policies that might be a complete waste of effort in uh, afghanistan might end up working fairly well in ukraine if you try to train fighters in afghanistan congratulations you've created a new rebel group against the quote-unquote central government in kabul and if you're training fighters in ukraine well you gave a battalion or or a division uh to the government in kiev and uh the country will actually cohere and fight as a nation state would if supplied with weapons equipment training and very importantly funding what shouldn't be forgotten in all the discussion of uh economic damage that russia has incurred the economic damage ukraine is incurring is even greater um so the country definitely is on is an economic life support in a very serious way with regard to what happened in the war i don't think russian incompetence explains the full story at all uh, i do think the russian military despite everything is uh on its own terms stronger than it was 20 years ago however ukraine's a truly vast country it's uh, at least on paper 40 million people I've been a little bit skeptical of that number. I think there's a variety of reasons Eastern European countries have an incentive to overreport their population and underreport how many have actually emigrated to richer countries in the West. And in Ukraine's case, actually, a significant number of them even immigrated into Russia that has a higher GDP per capita than Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is of course, before before the latest war. I think Ukraine's surprising strength or, to be even more precise, Ukraine's ability to absorb and effectively deploy Western aid. I think that's the big surprise. And I think that surprised Russian planners, but honestly, also Western planners. I don't know if you were following the news in the first few days, but in the first few days of the invasion, uh, you know, Joe Biden was offering Zelensky flights out of Ukraine if need be. I didn't know that lots of people were expecting the government might fall like I think there was a a leaked statement by a German politician that there's no sense in talking to Zelensky because we don't know if he's going to be around in 48 hours so a lot of people were expecting honestly something that I think is fairly unrealistic which was that the government of Ukraine would just collapse in 48 hours look even the Afghan government didn't collapse in 48 hours. I don't believe the Russians ever thought that. So whoever says that the Russians thought that the government would just collapse in 48 hours, I think they're wrong. But I don't think anyone who's saying that the Russians expected the government to collapse over the, case, over the course of two weeks or three weeks, I think the Russians may well have expected that and may have been deeply misinformed. If I were to identify a key weakness and problem with Russia, it could be that the the voices of the intelligence community in Russia, rather than the voices of the military, were the ones that Putin, partially because of his KGB background, trusted, where the belief might've been that, oh, we should try to keep this a secret. We should try to keep the Ukrainians guessing, even if it means we keep our own troops guessing. There are enough reports now that I believe large, large uh, chunks of the Russian army uh, had no idea that they were going to invade Ukraine, like a mere uh, a mere 24 or 48 hours before the invasion. Even if you've prepared everything as you would for an exercise, I don't think you can carry out that operation successfully. So, yes, I would. It, I I think that there is a key aspect of Russian incompetence here, but I don't think it's the kind of fractal incompetence we imagine from Russia of the 1990s, more something akin to uh, an epistemic closure around Putin, where the right information isn't flowing upward, but orders are successfully flowing downward. Now, Putin, of course, has claimed that he had to invade Ukraine
0: because of the threat Ukraine would join NATO. Do you think, I mean, just from Putin's pure self-interest, Was it a crazy decision for him? Obviously, it was evil, but was it, from his self-interest, crazy for him to invade Ukraine, given what he knew?
1: Yeah, when we're analyzing these things, it's sometimes best to leave the morality of it aside. The morality and immorality of war is is its own vast topic. But in terms of self-interest, and here I would actually extend it, I would say that, you know, Putin's fairly old. It's arguably not really in his personal interest or necessity, political interest, um, to undertake something as risky as this invasion so late in his political career. Let's remember, he's been running the country for over 20 years, and he's always been able to bolster popularity or resolve domestic problems with much uh, much smaller military action, sort of to project this image of a strong Russia. He didn't need to take all of Ukraine to project an image of a strong Russia. From Russia's geopolitical interest, though, I think Ukraine in NATO was a completely unacceptable outcome. In the long run, in 10 years, in 20 years, I do think Western anti-air defenses would have been set up in a Ukraine that was a NATO member. And I also think offensive weapons would have been set up Offensive weapons that are hard to distinguish or might, in fact, be, um, you know, devices that can carry nuclear weapons right into Russia, not very far from Moscow.
0: No. why would it be worse for Russia if those weapons were in Ukraine as opposed to, say, Poland or even the United States, given we could easily hit Russia?
1: I think it shortens response times. And I think uh, especially with hypersonic weapons, I think that does matter. Um, you know, if we have the thought experiment of uh, Florida seceding from the United States and becoming, you know, some sort of uh, Cuba-aligned country and the Chinese wheeling in nuclear weapons there, I think that thought experiment reveals why we might have extra objections, even if, say, the Chinese had already set up nuclear weapons in Cuba itself. And then, furthermore, the integration of Ukraine sort of would complete the West digesting uh, the aftermath of the first first breakup of the Soviet Union, the first breakup of the Russian Empire, because essentially, you know, how long before Belarusia joined that or before the government in Belarusia would be changed and it would decide to join NATO? At that point, you've sort of digested and stabilized this whole vast swath of land that after the collapse of the Russian Empire was kind of a source of instability, right? Uh, A lot of the fears around the collapse of Yugoslavia is that, you know, we're actually seeing things that are going to eventually happen in Russia. Say, uh, separatist movements in the Caucasus, uh, an independent Tartar Republic. These are policies that go from more trouble than it's worth to something that's definitely worthwhile for the West to back. So I think the West would pursue a policy of further fragmenting Russia because geopolitically, Russia is just too big.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, America's desire to promote democracy means Putin has to realize if there was an opportunity to overthrow him and replace him with democracy, we would we would go for it. And nothing any leader could say would probably change mm-hmm. the Russian elite's minds that that's, that would be our first choice.
1: Well, when it comes to the toppling of uh, Putin as well, it's uh, I think that's part of what he means by uh, agreement incapable. He's frequently publicly alluded to Gaddafi's fate and how he doesn't want to share Gaddafi's fate. Why is Gaddafi relevant? He's a former opponent of the West that after the invasion of Iraq came to some sort of accommodation right basically dismantled the uh, weapons of mass destruction programs insofar as he had any uh and for the trouble was a few years later toppled and uh you know killed by a mob quite graphically and this was considered a, a win of u.s foreign policy
0: yeah there's so, a video of hillary clinton like laughing with glee and recounting how uh, Gaddafi got killed
1: she yes, was Secretary
0: yes. of State. It, it's the, probably the worst possible incentive structure we can create for other leaders. I mean, leaders.
1: The, West, I mean... The, the West was a bit smarter um, during the Cold War, where arguably, you know, you could you could view the many alliances between more authoritarian states and the democratic countries of the West. You can view it in two ways. You can e- either view it as a betrayal of Western principles and Western hypocrisy, or you could view it as sound strategy. Because many of those authoritarian states, after economically integrating with the West, politically, militarily integrating with the West, ended up becoming functional democracies. Uh, South Korea is a great example of that. So if you can keep a deal with uh, a sort of strongman of a country uh, for the remainder of their career, you help develop the country, you provide it with all the other preconditions – Honestly, that might be the best way to democratize a country. I think South Korea certainly worked out much better uh, than Saddam Hussein's Iraq did,
0: yeah although the aftermath
1: have, of Iraq. We had so much
0: leverage over South Korea because of their military situation,
1: of course. Um, but again, you know, South Korea is is in a way is in a way not so unique in this regard. Um, One has to wonder, I don't think this is going to happen now, too much has happened, but was there not a missed opportunity somewhere around 1999 to offer a much more sweeping and better deal to Russia, economically better, Mm -hmm. and to start planning for a weak, declining Russia, but one that's perhaps a bit richer and more integrated with the West, as a counterbalance to a future rising China? I think if Western leaders were were thinking about it realistically, if they knew that, you know, China wasn't just going to converge and become a democracy soon, um, I think that the sort of reverse Kissinger strategy would have probably been the best one. And the Russians themselves would have actually, in my opinion, been happy to sell out. I mean, arguably, they tried to sell out to the West. They just didn't get paid very much.
0: Now, my understanding of the era is that we were hoping U.S. companies would go to Russia, there'd be economic development, but there was just so much corruption in Russia that our companies gave up trying. You'd set up a factory and the, the local police would help looters take everything.
1: So, right, right. But that's perhaps a problem that could have been solved again um, with a collaboration with Putin because, again, for all his flaws – He did actually discipline the oligarchs and he tamed some of the corruption in the early 2000s, perhaps with very brutal. No, actually, definitely sometimes with brutal measures. Right. Let's remember all the assassinations. Uh, But I do think Russia in 2010 was less corrupt than the Russia of 2000.
0: And, And Russia did. They wanted to join the EU and NATO. So they were very open at one point to joining the Western world.
1: And they would have, even had they done this and had their economies developed, I think Russia would have still been in a precarious position, but it would have been, you know, it would have been a Western asset rather than what it seems to be evolving into in the long run, a Chinese asset. Yeah, that's the stupidest thing from the US viewpoint.
0: I mean, we're obviously in long-term competition with China. China could well win this. I mean, we're alienating what you know russia and china are kind of natural enemies we have no basic reason to be angry with russia and john you know before the ukraine invasion we should be trying to pull russia into an alliance with us but that's we blew that one
1: yeah i think that that um you know that's a bridge that's a bridge that's been burnt um i do still think that there are opportunities basically there has to be a matching of strength to strength so I do think that the U.S. and the West should sort of now aim to build up NATO and perhaps even increase the military presence in existing NATO members. I still think even now, uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO is not a good idea. It's because, you know, Ukraine versus Russia, it's not, you know, it's not Croatia versus Serbia, where, where you can sort of pick the good guy and the bad guy. And yes, sure, there is a good guy, there is a bad guy. And you just drop a few bombs and you're done. It's, uh, it's in fact this scenario where, you know, uh, if Milosevic's Serbia had 6,000 nuclear warheads, then it would not be Milosevic's Serbia, right? You couldn't, you couldn't, you can't carry out a policy, uh, against, against Russia. You can't actually, uh, either freeze or overturn a conflict, right? It's sort of this kind of case where, I honestly, I'm not even sure the Ukrainians will ever sign a peace treaty. So at the very best case, it would be a little bit like North and South Korea, where the U.S. would technically be at war at all times with Russia, and there wouldn't actually be fighting. But what a crazy position to put yourself in diplomatically, right? Yeah. Uh, and here yeah. I'm referring to Article 5, right? So if Ukraine is at war with Russia and Ukraine becomes a NATO member, like, wait, technically, all of NATO's... Uh, at war with russia even if it's a, a ceasefire or something you know
0: right and there'll be gray area conflict where russia claims that you know ukrainian nazis massacred ethnic russians we don't quite know if that's true or not and then russia retaliates and do we consider the retaliation an act of war against the united states
1: i mean and let's not forget russia has also proven skilled at setting up separatist regions and breakaway republics in other countries right in moldova there is the Transistria Republic, uh, which is, I think, a great example uh, of a breakaway part of the country of Moldova that's, you know, predominantly Russian-speaking, uh, that is an unrecognized state and that's Russian-aligned. There are Russian soldiers there in that country. Um, there are also examples such as uh, South Ossetia uh, in Georgia that are again unrecognized breakaway provinces, but armed uh, have armed forces and have Russian troops present. How do you judge the Biden
0: administration? Do you think they're competent actors, you know, doing things for the best interest of America or the world, or is that not really someone in charge? Are the adults not in charge?
1: I'm just happy Twitter's not in charge, <laughs> to be yeah. honest. Uh, If Twitter was in charge, uh, or the commentators on Twitter, uh, I think we would have uh, been flying into a nuclear war 48 hours in, uh, or 72 hours in. So I do think the government has shown some restraints, the U.S. government has shown some restraints in avoiding the most egregious moves that would definitely lead to nuclear war. But in other ways, it has been pretty brazen, because... And again, this has almost nothing to do with the justice or the morality of the situation. You know, usually there's more of a fig leaf when you're arming a country that's actively at war with your enemy. Uh, In a strange way, I think it's even perhaps good propaganda for the Russians, because insofar as they lose or fail to win as much as they wanted to in Ukraine, they can say, we were fighting all of NATO. Look at all of these ministers and president's statements look at all these weapons they sent and that they themselves are saying that they sent uh usually we've been much more covert in 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 funding and arming like this this thinnest leaf of pretext i think that might have been useful to preserve even in this case
0: do you think putin has succeeded in getting most russians on his side in this
1: yes really i think i think that was not clear that was not clear a few days after the invasion but Right now, I, I think Russians are not enthusiastic about the war, um, but the intensifying nature of the conflict is actually pulling them in. So I think for whatever reason, perhaps it's this kind of rally around the flag effect, I think Russians are more in favor of this war than they were two months ago. So you think if there's a a secret and honest referendum
0: on whether Putin stays or goes, he'd probably, Putin would probably win it in Russia right now?
1: I think he would. And I think he would on the reasoning that whatever problems he has, well, we're now at war and we have to win the war. So if you imagine, uh, you know, the U.S. being pulled into an unpopular war and the fighting is still going on. So I'm not talking here about occupation, just actual fighting, right? Mm Um. I think even if the war was disastrously led, uh, the U.S. public would at least have lukewarm support for the sitting president.
0: What happens to Putin if he basically gives up? He keeps the parts of Ukraine he had before all this started, but he just pulls out and says, I couldn't beat the West, or he, he makes up something about how they were planning on invading Russia, and we stopped that. Do you think he can
1: survive? I think that he could survive. I would still not say it's the likeliest outcome. Um, And I would say he could survive because I think there's been evidence of a significant purge in Putin's circle with several people uh, developing health problems and (laughs) retiring.
0: But you you put his chances of surviving below 50 percent.
1: Under the conditions where Russia actually has to retreat to pre-invasion borders, you know, I would take it, I would put it at something like 40 percent. Because I think that in that case, he would have to deal with all the people who are currently – think of you if you're like the extreme Russian nationalist faction. Mm -hmm. Right now, you are more in favor of Putin than you ever have been. But if Putin makes a peace that looks too much like a defeat, uh, you sort of view yourself as stabbed in the back by Putin. So it basically multiplies his political enemies – in what were formerly his political uh supporters it's always the case that you know it's 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 you know your old enemies being your enemies it's kind of like you've known how to deal with that uh but acquiring a whole new set of enemies that often is just enough to to push you uh to push you into defeat in in the political game
0: oh that makes sense because he can pick the people who could really hurt him based on what's going on now but if suddenly that situation were to change he wouldn't. He might have people positioned who the ultra-nationalists who would hate him now.
1: And yes. They're close to and, him. And in fact, the weird situation might develop if Putin loses power, that the person that comes to power after Putin is actually unhinged and is actually, uh, and is, is actually irrational. How, how does that happen? Well, the likeliest case in which Putin loses power, I think, is not protests, but a military coup. Mm-hmm. By people proposing that he betrayed Russia and for people who are right now fighting in Ukraine. Do they propose he betrayed Russia by uh, getting Russia into the war in Ukraine or by By making a treasonous peace with Ukraine. So if your whole claim to legitimacy when you're overthrowing the former president is that the former president betrayed the country by sending uh, by signing a weak peace when the war was actually eminently winnable by the military i uh you know I could honestly imagine the person rising to power in that situation being pretty unhinged so
0: this would be like the people at the end of World War two in Japan who wanted to stop the the peace agreement the,
1: the people who wanted to keep on fighting yeah. which was you know truly insane at that particular time it was it was, but such people were in high positions of government, partially because you know if you're insanely in favor of continuing the war and the government's main fear and say 1943 or something is uh, people being demoralized like you know that's those are in a way useful people to have around also structurally the japanese navy and army were locked into promoting a different set of insane policies Mm -hmm. so it's just the kind of people that were uh, at the top of the command structure Uh, i don't know enough about I don't know enough about the ideological composition and the worldviews and the material interests of people in the high ranks of Russia's chain of command. But again, if Putin is overthrown on nationalist grounds, on pro-Russian nationalist grounds, even if you get someone rational, their political incentives are to show that they're tough on the West and tough on Ukraine, certainly to show that they are tougher on the West and tougher on Ukraine than Putin was.
0: So the U.S. and the West should develop a strategy of what
1: to do. We
0: should, I think, immediately say, if Putin is We should have a
1: post-Putin plan.
0: Yeah, we should say we're prepared to blame the whole thing on Putin. You're absolved of all guilt, and we will immediately transfer $20 billion to help you rebuild. We promise no NATO in Ukraine. You can claim that as your
1: victory. Or something like that. I, I don't know whether that would be enough, but that's that would be a sort of a carrot to add to the stick because yeah. right now there's no clear carrot that's been offered to Russia. Like no Russian politician or political coalition outside of Putin has a carrot except the very, very fringes of the opposition who perhaps, you know, um, believe that they would be supported in remaining in power within Russia. Yeah. Not after carrot. Putin.
0: I mean, Not having a carrot, that's like failing game theory, right? You want to maximize the distance between if they go for you or if they go against you. And just having the if you go against me part is really, really bad.
1: Right. But um, politically, it's very difficult to offer anything else. Yeah. I mean, you could do it. At least for Western leaders.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. But then the question is how capable are you of secret diplomacy? And how much is that secret diplomacy trust? Uh, How much is that trusted in Russia? Arguably, the state of trust in a Western promise in Russia, and to be fair, a Russian promise in the West, is quite low right now. I think it's probably worse than um, most of the Cold War. I think that's a post, you know, the famous Soyuz Apollo docking. The US and Russia were still enemies, but there was a basic belief that some agreements would be abided by both sides.
0: Oh, I have a crazy idea. This will never happen. But, you know, President Biden is in trouble because his drug addict son, Hunter Biden, is corrupt and all that. He could offer Hunter as a hostage that would rehabilitate Hunter, <laughs> help Biden politically. And that's something the Russians probably would respect if you're giving us your son as a hostage.
1: Again, never happen. Well, but. I, th- I think I think I think I. I think we don't know how to do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, social technology of hostage taking and exchange—it's—it uh, um, definitely had its place in Western history. Like it's how uh, Charlemagne got his nobles to stop fighting each other, or <laughs> rather, his his tribal uh, these tribal fict- uh, fracturous people to become a more cohesive nobility. Right? That's how he did it. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't think we. I don't think we have the social. Uh, we don't have the social technology to make this happen. A version of it did actually happen in a Western country quite recently. Uh, Francisco Franco was willing to have his plan for succession be the restoration of the Spanish monarchy under the condition that he gets to raise the heir apparent uh, who would be the future king of Spain and sort of Francoist ideology and that uh, you know could groom him to be the successor so there would be a restoration of the monarchy but the liberal king would not be in charge rather his son would be in charge who you know would be re-educated from being a good liberal um you know the franco overestimated work for yeah. franco it didn't work but the, the fact that franco took that deal i think that shows this kind of like hostage taking mm-hmm. especially if you put a few like you know if you p- put a few spins on it like some so, so a paint of coat, it, variants of it can still be done even in the modern world.
0: And of course, the doctrine of mad is basically taking the populations hostage.
1: Right, right. So maybe we are actually living in the uh, Industrial Revolution version of hostage taking. Everyone's a hostage. We've democratized hostage taking.
0: Yeah, it's gone well Progress. so far,
1: but if it
0: goes badly, it goes really, really badly.
1: Yeah. Of all you know of all of the considerations in, in this war, one of the more interesting, you know sort of side effects of it that I think has not been discussed much is that there has been an effect of tying European allies much closer to the United States than they have been before. I think this is good for the United States. It's not actually clear it's good for the Europeans themselves. Uh, but I do think that in an odd way, if this doesn't escalate to a nuclear war, uh, this might have solidified U.S. standing in Europe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll make it harder for the Europeans to go against, say, big tech in the U.S. if that big tech has the support of the U.S. government.
1: Of course. And also, Sweden and Finland being NATO members, that's a significant strategic consolidation. Mm-hmm. Do
0: you think Russia's going to allow Sweden and Finland to join NATO without threatening something
1: serious? I mean, what? I can't imagine Russia allowing Finland to do so. I think that um, that would result in some kind of retaliation. I don't think they have the troops for any sort of conventional invasion of Finland. That, I think, would not necessarily work out that well for them. Though, again, perhaps I would argue that invading Finland would have actually been easier um, militarily than invading Ukraine. The country's population is significantly lower. It's an easier task to occupy um, Though, again, it has, you know, technologically, it it would do better. Um, Sweden, it's a different matter. I'm not so sure. I'm not sure that they're actually feeling that threatened by Sweden. And this is just because of geography of Finland? being. I think just because of geography. Yeah, it's a it's sort of like, you know, a neutral Finland is much less of a buffer uh, between Russia and sort of the West um, but it's still an acceptable buffer. But no buffer, that's just pretty bad for Russia.
0: Um, I mean, it's looking now that Finland's going to try to join NATO and that NATO's going to let Finland in. So this is you're predicting a serious conflict over this? I,
1: I predict some type of serious escalation. I don't yet know what form it'll take. The Russians might just be busy. Uh, but I expect that they will at the very least, try in future years brinksmanship uh, to destabilize Finland. And while this might sound, you know, at this point in history, sort of a strange idea, uh, it should be remembered that Russia has had a significant influence within Finnish politics for a very long time, both among extremist movements and mainstream parties. There are perhaps enough political assets that something could be done to even destabilize such a well functioning country such as finland
0: you don't think almost all the finns have now turned against russia
1: well turning against russia publicly and you know actually being independent from russia i think these are perhaps two two different things and also whatever means they would take to destabilize finland i don't think it would take the form of a pro of an obviously pro russian faction i think it would just be some sort of very serious troublemaking
0: so they would be russia would be sponsoring or, or at least covertly funding groups in
1: finland that were not going to play by the normal political rules and exactly like i i think that funding or supporting with intelligence um or covering for politically even or with with other favors uh extremists you know that that could be quite doable the fun question is, does a much older Finland still have extremists, right? One of the things that I think is happening to all sorts of countries around the world um, that used to be more politically dynamic is that as the population pyramid inverts, uh, societies are becoming literally older, right? More set in their ways, whatever those ways happen to be.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was part of the prediction for why Ukraine wouldn't fight back
1: is that they have too low a fertility rate, they're too old, they're not
0: you Ukraine know, is one of the
1: few countries. Yeah, Ukraine's one of the few countries in the world that actually has a slightly worse demographic problem than Russia. So, anything you've ever heard about Russia's demographic implosion applies just as much to Ukraine. And um, a really significant portion of their young people moved to work in the West. And while they have closed their borders for young men fleeing the country, we are talking about millions of Ukrainian civilians, women and children mostly. Uh, now living in uh, you know other European countries, I think most of them actually never go back. So even a victorious Ukraine will have been significantly weakened in the long run by this war.
0: Now, do you think Poland will be open to keeping the Ukrainian refugees? They're, they're not going to say okay, you know, assuming it's the, the violence stops, they're not going to say all right, time to go back.
1: I think the. Polish are actually going to be quite fine with keeping Ukrainians and you know they might sort of complain about it in some ways but I think it'll be basically good for the Polish economy and their perception will be well we just added an extra 2 million Slavic speaking so that means they have an easy time learning Polish Slavic speaking anti-Russian citizens or residents arguably that's a political asset for Poland. Heck, it's a military asset for Poland. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I and mean, Ukrainian, I mean, Poland's much richer than Ukraine, so the Ukrainians
1: will like Significantly that. so. Yeah, there were already many, many Ukrainians working in Poland, and there was very little pushback, you note know, against Ukrainian immigration, economic-driven immigration into Poland, compared to the very strong pushback to, say, the refugee resettlement. I do think here cultural affinities and the perception of, this sort of broad Christian alignment or Slavic anti-Russian alignment, I think those play a role in the Polish public perceiving it very, very differently. Um, note that right before this war, one of the provocations was uh, Belarusians uh, and Russians importing Middle Eastern refugees and sending them over from the Belarusian to the Polish border. And you can remember the very strong immediate response of the Polish that they're not going to accept this. Mm-hmm. And then one can contrast it with what's happening now. And, you know, I don't want to denounce this as as racism or anything like that. I'm just, realistically, they are responding differently. That's what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting. The radical left in the U.S. has been saying that, like, wait a minute, it's kind of weird that Europe is so okay with Ukrainian refugees, but weren't with, like, refugees from Syria. But that that might be sort of right in the motivations and what's going on.
1: I also think, realistically, Polish society will have a fairly easy time assimilating people whose formative political identity is that they're anti-Russian and who will have an easy time spe- learning the Polish language. Um, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if many Polish people assume that if someone's from West Ukraine, that they're basically secretly a Pole anyway. You know, This <laughs> used to be land that belonged to Ukraine, and then the poor Ukrainians were brainwashed by the Russians into thinking they're not Polish. <laughs>
0: I had a I viral, it. yeah, I, I had a viral tweet, um, mostly because people were attacking me, but on a way to like really hurt Russia based on the demography ish problems, and that we should offer open immigration to Russian women of childbearing age,
1: and try to. Oh, I think that would just destroy Russia. I think that that sort of is, uh, it's the kind of thing that you, it's just it's politically it would almost on a, on a basic biological level that would feel so humiliating even to the Russian value system.
0: If all the women are leaving, it's like, wait, that (laughs) we have to be failing if they don't want to stay.
1: Right, right, right. Uh, You could even do the gender neutral version of it and it would still work. Basically if you were just like, yeah, you know, anyone that's younger than 30, you get a free green card. If you show up, Mm -hmm. I think we would, I think it would be something like, 10 million people. And, uh, you know, 10 million young people, well, that's that's the future of the country right there yeah. because the country's already so old. Um, I, I don't know whether that would immediately be even the majority of them, but it would be so, so many, way too many.
0: Yeah, I'm sure Russia would respond by closing their borders and trying to stop people from leaving, but that would, of course, impose huge costs on the country.
1: Immense costs and, again, less viscerally humiliating than just the women leaving but uh still humiliating right and the west could then uh you know allude to the berlin wall and talk about how there's a new wall and that one day this wall is going to fall too so it kind of works ideologically for western needs as well
0: Yeah, and then you have problems of like when russians go to china they would try to then you know go to japan and the united states and we'd have to stop that and that would just be really difficult for russia
1: yeah very difficult
0: I'm worried about the incentives for Biden. Now, I have no reason to think he's going to put his self-interest ahead of the world. But if he were to, given how poorly Biden is doing politically, I, he might welcome a wider conflict that creates a rally around the flag effect.
1: I think a successful war has proven quite useful politically for many presidents. But I would caution that at both as a gambit, right, or even I would be surprised if biden would think it is that much in his benefit because let's remember that uh you know um bush 41 won the war and lost the election right was not reelected president precedent despite you know amazing success in the first gulf war militarily mm-hmm.
0: yeah although you could time it right so you just have the conflict it's just you wouldn't have people wouldn't expect you to have won it by the particular time
1: Right, right, the right. The possibility, the possibility exists. I think the key variable here is how long does the war in Ukraine last? Mm-hmm. I would suspect that unless there is a de facto ceasefire, this isn't a 10-year war. This isn't a five-year war. Um, I would expect the bulk of the fighting to be over in a year or two. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the timing, the timing of... Is there a good way for the U.S. to intervene at whatever stage of the war we happen to be in a month from now, two months from now, six months from now, a year from now? You know, these exact opportunities, I think, are just impossible to predict at this phase because I think it's so difficult to figure out where exactly the war is going to be uh, at those milestones. Okay, one, one final question for you. Do you think the
0: Ukrainian government is really operating in the best interest of the Ukrainian people by continuing to fight?
1: I think the Ukrainian government at this point is um, operating in the best interests of the Ukrainian state. And then it really really depends on how how much you think that's aligned with the interest of the people. I I think historically, you know, there are many, many times when a state uh, pursued the interest of the state. And, you know, um, defended itself where it would have been possibly better for the individual citizens to surrender. And, you know, I don't think we should expect states to stop behaving as states do. Okay. Well,
0: well, thank you very much. And uh, do you want to remind listeners where they can contact you and encounter your works?
1: Um, Yes, you can uh, find my writing on samoburia.com. And you can follow me on Twitter, at samoburia.
0: Okay. Well, well, thank you very much. I appreciate your time.
1: Thank you, James. Thank you for having me on the show.